and welcome to a very special edition of the Presentable Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bean, and we are recording live in front of an audience at the Albert Hall in, no- in Nottingham, England, home of the New Adventures Conference. Hello, audience. <laughs> Wonderful. We are midway through the day here, and the three sessions so far have been energizing and thought-provoking. Really amazing stuff. I'm pleased to have those three speakers on stage with me now. For those of you in the hall, there's a hashtag on the screen right there, NACompQA. If you send questions to that, the team here will uh, monitor that and raise them as they come through. So let's get started. Uh, The first person here I have is London-based designer and futurist Kenneth Bowles. He's the author of the book Future Ethics and spoke today on an ethical approach to approaching new technology. Good to have you, Kenneth. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Uh, next up is biologist-turned-design thinker Akil Benjamin. He leads the research team at design studio Kamuzi and tackled the topic of taking mindful approach to radical change in design. Hi, Akil. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> and finally, Natalie Kane, the curator of digital design at the V&A Museum in London, where she's responsible for their digital design collection. She discussed the approach to preservation of constantly changing, ever-growing digital artifacts. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm very good. Good. Well, I'm so glad to have all of you here. There's been unbelievable uh, stuff this morning. Um, very good speeches from all three of you. Uh, one of the themes, I think one of the things that Simon, the organizer of our conference here, uh, raised is the, the idea of change, and not just change in our industry, because I think we all started in this industry at various times, assuming that so much was happening with technological change and we wanted to be a part of it. But it feels like in the past few years that this was not the change we were expecting. And so many of the consequences of the design work that we have done have come out in ways that were totally unexpected. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So, Kenneth, you started by kind of painting a picture of the changes in the economy, uh, in our technology, and in the environment, and how they have kind of gone in ways we didn't expect. Inequality, profound automation, uh, uh, alarmism for the, the very justified climate collapse that's happening and things like that. Um, how have you taken that in, in your own career, in your own life, of like, oh my God, did you expect to be where you are today? Yeah, how have I taken that in? Not very well. Um, last year, particularly for me, was sort of dominated by the realization that climate was not just sort of an abstract problem, but something that's going to define the next century. Um, and yeah, that personal uh, journey for me was very difficult. Some people in the audience might have seen I had an earlier version of that talk that was much doomier. That was the happy version that we saw today. Um, and it's very tricky to grapple with one's responsibilities and complicitness, complicity, I suppose, um, in having made some of these present-day situations come about. And yeah, it's very tough for us to question that. And I think it's fair to say we didn't expect uh, the world to take the trajectory it has, has particularly in the last five or so years. Um, and now we have to wrestle with that and find a way to solve our collective conscience, consciences, uh, consciousness and, um, and then find a way to move forward collectively. Well, let me give you a, like a very personal sort of experience that I've had. I uh, had the unbelievable sort of privilege and, and opportunity about 15 years ago uh, to work at Google on a very sort of secret and, and hidden project uh, in which we were going to create tools for the people who make websites to help them understand how effective they were 
they were. And we were going to make these tools as powerful as the big professional enterprise systems and give it away for free. That project turned into Google Analytics. I led the design of Google Analytics. Our intent was empowerment, was you can see, because back then, it was very difficult to tell if our design was working at all. You should be able to quantify how that works. And, um, and like I said, our intent was very much about that. And in fact, many of the people I work with went on to the Obama campaign after we finished that project to use those tools to sort of change power structure in the, in the country. And now, 15 years later, I look back and see, wow, I designed some of the fundamental principles of the surveillance state. Like, how, uh, you talked about taking responsibility for unintended consequences. How, how, do, I, how do I think about that? Yes, I mean, so I worked for Twitter for three years. I was design manager here in the UK. Um, and when I joined 2012, uh, social media was deemed to be, you know, uh, generally a, a, a force for good for the world. This was shortly after the Arab Spring. The narrative was that um, technology would uproot these harmful hierarchies and dictatorships and replace them with something else. And to an extent, yes, they have. But also those systems have learned how to manipulate those very technologies. And I think companies like Twitter are now realizing or have realized in the last few years that, oops, you know, we, we really should have taken that more seriously. With respect to how we actually tackle those consequences, um, in my talk I talked about turning to the fields of uh, strategic foresight and future studies to tease out some of those consequences that may befall a various number of actors as a result of our decisions, and then bringing people into the design process so that we don't exclude people, we don't exclude this wider set of actors and and non-users even from our decision making. So it's about taking a, a wider perspective uh, on our design challenges and also taking them more thoughtfully, more inclusively, and potentially more slowly. That's great. Akil, you talked a lot about a very specific sort of design process that you go through called, let me see what I have, consequence scanning. Yeah. To pause in the middle of a project, bring in outside influence and say, what could go wrong? Yeah, right? That's such a stark contrast to the, the previous generation of design, of this idea of go fast, break things, be disruptive. So I have a real issue with move fast and break things. Like, I've got a huge fundamental issue with it. And I think it's come from my experience with working with these emerging technologies, right? These things that are nascent or small or have this weird impact that we all think is good or could be a force for good. And then it just goes on scales and becomes evil like everything else. Picture, if you draw that curve or whatever that looks like on a graph, there's many things that fit that. Now, when you stop and say, okay, wait, we know what's happened before. We've got some history behind us. We've got other people in the room. We've got their collective experiences of this thing or something similar. We've got what happens. Someone says, oh, wait, what if AI now... Or what if this tool, what if this emerging technology now just marginalizes people from their postcode instead? And it just changes from what you look like to where you live. And, because, and the reason why it can go from what you look like to where you live is because a lot of people that look like you live in a similar area. It's the same level of, it's even worse now because it's almost blind and they can say, oh yeah, but... And it's a different form of discrimination. When you consequence scan, you take those opportunities to just look and see and listen. You're just like, hey, I don't actually have to live this reality. And the choice of not living that really annoying, difficult reality where you end up in a problem that you kind of knew coming, 
is really helpful because you can be doing other stuff. And this is the type of work that we try and like push out into the world, the other stuff. This is really interesting. It reminds me a little bit of like in the security world, you do a thing called penetration testing, right? Where you bring in an outside firm and say like, see if you can get into our network. And they are experts at like looking for vulnerabilities and things like that. You're creating kind of an agency that does that for different perspectives of an ethical design. Are you brave enough to listen? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, all guns blazing. This brief is amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, we created this amazing thing. And because you've spent so much time and effort and love and hard work, you're kind of scared of that scrutiny, aren't you? You're kind of scared you're told that six weeks, 12 weeks, 18 weeks worth of work is not worth and so you're like, maybe I don't show it to the person, or maybe I don't show them the critical part that's really going to make the difference. Like, yeah, that's one of the things. Uh, yeah. I talked to lots of designers about getting over the ego part of presenting your work, right? Of showing others as a work in progress and, and disassociating your own sense of like, but I made this and it's a reflection of me. Shall I tell you what I do? When I'm getting critique, I get some blue tack in my hand. And I'll, roll the blue, and I'll roll the blue tack. Like, <laughs> even if I'm mad frustrated at what this person is saying, I'll roll the blue mechanism. tack yeah. and I'll let them finish their piece and then I'll sit down quietly and discern what I want what I want to listen to versus what I don't believe is as valid. Yeah, Because yeah. you have to work out the person you're listening to, if they're not expert in your field or if they're not expert on the question you're asking them, it's like asking a jeweler about building a house. It's not the right thing to do. Yeah. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. These are the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. It's so easy to use. You can get access to far more parts on your laptop and make your nice MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play with no drivers, so you can enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and Display Link video connectors, plus USB 3, USB C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things uh, in high volume manufacturing and all sorts of other IT products as well. Plus, they have rigorous test cycles and quality control. And that means all their products are tested above industry standards. So if you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive any one of their docking stations today. Visit kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out the Kensington docking stations. That's kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. One of the things I heard all of you uh, talking about is how designers are specifically um, uh, have, have specific capabilities around making artifacts. That is like taking the intangible, especially in the future vision of things, and kind of making them real. But Natalie, you had this great perspective on just how difficult it is to preserve those artifacts that we make. I had this experience. I went to the, uh, the Design Museum in London. Uh, they had last year a uh, exhibit called Designed in California that had all of the stuff that sort of came out of Silicon Valley, and not just Silicon Valley, but protests and, you know, the hippie movement and the, the counterculture. All, it was an amazing exhibit. And I saw some of my work. They had there the first website from Wired Magazine, which I worked on in 1994, but they had it on a television screen as a looping video because you can't run a mosaic browser that kind of gives the look and feel of what we were doing back then. Um, and it made me realize, like, all of that work for, as much as, you know, the Internet Archive tries to preserve what we're doing, uh, 
we upload new versions and it changes every day and it goes away. Um, you've... Yeah, I mean, I was actually, we were talking about this at dinner yesterday where most of my, my job feels like people griping about Flash. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> it was like people saying like, oh, do you remember the day when everyone used to make things on, yeah, Flash. Uh, yeah, Flash games, yeah, Flash artworks. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because there was a, it's, it, it has become such an interesting project because I, I, as well as kind of deciding what goes in, into to collections, we also have to decide what is going to be reasonable because it's obviously it's a lot of resources that go into deciding what we have to kind of put our budgets into. And it means that actually it's, you can, you have like passion projects and they're like, ah, oh, Whitney and Momo will go, um, I think Momo are currently looking at um, the Preserving Bjork's VR project, which yeah. is made by seven different studios. So imagine this, the seven different dependencies and different things that are there. But also Whitney are now going back and, and uh, preserving all the net art from the 90s, which are built on loads of different things. There's a really amazing um, talk that I saw someone give about trying to match the colours of a Flash game that was once created to current, like, I think they're rebuilding it in, like, WebGL. I think that's what they're currently doing at the moment. Um, but there's, there's a bunch of issues where it's, like, trying to... The, the current thing that... that we have at the moment is is having conversations with current designers about what they can build to make it last for as long for now so it's, there's almost like a, this dual conversation now where it's like if we can't go back and and get what we we, we we can get from the past how can we work with current designers and current people who are making stuff now to create stable versions of things that can exist for the future like can we get them to create things which will last for the next 10-15 years and we know that actually weirdly mp3s mp4s jpegs are the most stable format so videos of your website unfortunately will last for way longer which is sad and those those digital formats have the benefit of sort of extending beyond patent protection and and mm. essentially some of them becoming yeah. open source or at least the attempt to try to get things like png files and and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. There's, a, there's lots of different protections with things like archives and libraries that, that we can cover and we can't cover. And the, the problem is it's more to do with um, access, again, to proprietary and third party. There's, there's a, I know it's an ongoing anxiety, and it actually, as I mentioned in my talk, it's a bigger issue with us around IP and copyright. Um, the fact is that we're going to end up having this massive gaping hole where Apple, Facebook, Twitter, everyone's going to be, and you're just going to have loads of really weird artworks around it, mm. which I'm kind of secretly we're just going to have all the weird artworks and it's okay yeah. but because if you talk to um, a lot of these companies they'll send you straight to their legal teams um, which is because it's, it's more they don't understand the concept of ownership by cultural institutions and it's not because they're inherently terrible and evil I'm not going to speculate on that statement too far um, but it's more the case of like trying to understand the, the, the notion of cultural ownership into the future because when you go to give to a public museum it has to be free and open anyone has to be able to access it in the V&A. So when you give something to a museum, anyone has to be able to have a look at it. So when you give it to someone, it, that in, in, includes like the code. And Apple aren't going to give it. Right. So. Yep, yep. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the, uh, the process that we're going through here when we're, when we're doing design. I have heard uh, from, um, from you all uh, today, as well as from a bunch of other designers that I've been talking to, a little bit of rethinking of this notion that we've practiced for 20 years in user experience of user-centered design, of observing in the world needs that people have and then providing them solutions to those needs as products that, that uh, for all intents and purposes, were in designed to make their lives better. Uh, 
a lot of people now stepping back, and like you mentioned, uh, Kenneth, the climate change, saying like so much of that user-centered design sort of fulfills people's desires at the expense of all the living things on the planet and the planet itself. Um, you've talked, both of you uh, and Akil have talked about uh, less empathy and more inclusion as a way forward. Do you see new process, design process coming from that? Not less empathy. You can't do that. Inclusion, yeah, but not less empathy. The only reason why is because my mom said you have to listen. If you don't have empathy, you don't get, like, you just miss a trick. Now, the interesting part is where, I probably went to Kenneth's talk where I heard this, um, user-centered design plus scale equals mass consumption. I probably heard this, that you say that, like, human, humane tech. No, not you? Wow. Surprised. Um, I always had that pegged to him. Anyway, user-centered design plus scale equals mad consumption for everything. And you see it. The way you see it is if you're a product manager and you ask the user what do they want, they end up with a ream and ream and ream and ream and ream of lists of just stuff to just serve their need that they might use once in a quarter. Yeah. It's not enough to make out a new feature. It's not enough usability to make out a new feature. I think the interesting part now comes where you discern what's good and what's bad and how you do that. So when we're thinking out concepts and when we're mapping things out, we map them out against design principles that we already have at the start of the project. Now, the reason why we map them out and measure them against design principles that we already have against the project is so we can see that, okay, this user might say they want it, that's good, we're listening, and, but after you say you want it, does this match up with our strategic objectives? Because if it doesn't, then we can't, make this, we can't make what we're making successful. We can't. And so when you do those things you start ending up in a place where you can almost scale out your user-centered design a little bit better than, okay, I'm building everything for everybody all the time. We have, uh, we have talked a bit about uh, designers being very powerful. We shape the future, right, uh, uh, ostensibly. Um, doesn't the, the conversation about empathy, though, kind of play to that power structure of, I am going to make decisions for other people? Unfortunately, it's just the nature of the work, No. Like, we are designers. We design things that many people use. We have power. Good. You know it. Are you complicit in the crap that goes on the further marginalizes people on the internet? Make a choice. Okay, how can I make practical choices that boil down on my day-to-day -day actions? Look at what you're trying to do and ask yourself, is what I'm doing right here, right now, helpful or not? I think that's, that's the only simple way I can keep it without going into like, everyone's interaction, but yeah. yeah. Well, if I can uh, chip in on that, though, I think, um, yes, we do have power, but you know, there is that cliche, with power comes responsibility. And I think there is a worrying directionality sometimes at play in how designers think about the world around us and our public. I mean, I think this is something that um, we'll hear more about later in the day. Liz Jackson, I think, uh, has some strong thoughts on how designers see others as a site for intervention, you know, we, there's a, a movement currently in the sort of futures space, futures for all, which kind of gets close to it, but it's still directed for other people. It's not with other people. So I think we do have that power, but it's also then our responsibility to use that power to bring other people to that position of power as well, where they can exert some leverage and influence. And that's the way we make a future that 
Other people have some agency and some power and some control to help shape as well. It's not just a technocratic elite such as myself making those decisions on behalf of other people. Difficult. I mean, power is generally not shared. It's taken. And this episode of Presentable is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. When you're listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site. And more importantly, when it's not, you need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Pingdom helps keep your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about any critical website issues. They'll let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom. And Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. All they need is your URL that you want to monitor and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash relay FM right now for a 14 day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code presentable at checkout and you'll get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to pingdom from solar winds for their support of this show and all of relay FM. Uh, now you talked a lot about the humanness of, of trying to exist in the digital world and it being a lot being all the time. Um, uh, t- tell us a little bit more about how that has affected how you approach the collecting that you're doing and, I mean, and, the, and the sort of how, what you're trying to share with the public. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more of an ongoing thing. Is, is I've written quite a lot about what it means in the past, I don't know, a couple of years around my experiences of being a young person on the internet, for instance, as an early kind of foundational way of what it means for you to understand and navigate yourself through that space and to be subverted, to subvert that space and to be kind of a subject or an object of it. So the idea of when, I don't know, I was on like LiveJournal and Tumblr and MySpace and like the idea of when you suddenly realise the person that you're becoming and the person that you are with others and the way that you understand. And it's not just a case of like going back to your live journal and realising that, oh my God, like all of my embarrassing stuff is on the internet and maybe I should delete that, which I definitely did. And now I feel kind of sad about that I deleted my live journal. Um, but it comes back to this idea of, um, of when you realise that the subject of your kind of emotions and the, pers- and, the, and the way that we understand ourselves becomes the sort of other power structures that are beyond your own, the way that you understand yourself. That's where it becomes complicated because this is the, the thing that frustrates me about this conversation around power um, that I think that sometimes the nuance is lost sometimes. So I, I had this conversation around the privilege of quitting Facebook, for instance, um, where it's like quitting Facebook is an immense privilege. If you are a queer teenager in a conservative town who can talk to other queer teenagers, it's it's an immense privilege to be able to to, to quit a space where you don't you, ha- you don't have to make that trade off because your friends happen to be in, in like on those spaces to be able to leave a place where you can have the, like those kind of higher politics. So you have to use the platform. So it's it's almost up for those who have those high morals to enable those who can have those better spaces and it's it's interesting so I had a conversation with a, a really amazing um engineering professor called Deb Chapter about this and she always talks about the the issue of uh, why we should have to deprive ourselves individually when we should be forcing systems to be better and like why should it be a case of us 
us forcing people to be individual, kind of like, why should we have to remove ourselves? Because the ones who often have to remove are often the most marginalised. And those who are most marginalised are the ones who historically have always had to remove themselves. So why should they have to do it now in, in digital internet kind of culture? Why should we not force people to just create better, more regulated systems which just are better? And like that's what we force our government and lawmakers to take these things seriously. And that's where it's like, I don't know, because she talks about it in terms of water systems. And like, I, she's basically writing a book and I cannot wait for it because she has this amazing phrasing basically saying, I'm trying not to like spoil her book for her and I hope she's listening. But the second chapter is basically like, once you realise how systems work, you can't not be communist or something. Because the idea of like how you realise that all systems should be collectively run and governed and, and regulated. And you realise that we should all understand that from that point. Um, and that's how I think about things like digital culture and the internet and the way that we should all care for each other and be with each other. And that's how I remember, like, I don't know, if you just throw the fact that John Perry Barlow only wrote the collective cyberspace of the internet because porn was being banned, like, I don't care what anyone says, where they're just like, oh, yeah, John Perry Barlow wrote the freedom by cyberspace of the internet about freedom and the internet. No, because he literally saw a talk at the, I can't remember what the convention centre was, where he, they were like, and now the government regulations for banning porn on the internet. And he was like, Sh-. <laughs> sorry, language. Um, and, but the idea of us, of what, of what it meant for us to be together with one another and to care for each other as a collective system. Yeah. Sorry, I'm taking up space. Um, but that for me is the, the collective goal, the collective commons, the collective good. good. So. Why don't we take a question from the audience? questions kind of gathered together for our panel one for each of you i'll start with um akil um how did you go about starting something like kamozi lab and how would if you were going to do it again how would you do it and get recognized for it and get paid for it all right kamozi lab never started as kamozi lab let's start with that so any notion that i woke up with some grand idea that i'd be a designer is false I fell into it just like everyone else did. Um, Community used to be a music company. It used to be a record label. That's the truth. Um, community music, yeah, no. Uh, next step, we started building music technology to connect communities to like artists and record labels. This is just when Spotify just came out, or just after. Then you realize the record industry is mad expensive, but you can now build. So you go around town trying to build for others. You build B2B software in the end. Then you build healthcare software because B2B space is hard and no one trusts an 18-year-old building B2B software. <laughs> Turns out no one trusts an 18 or 20-year-old building healthcare software, but, but the Department of Health does commend you for your work because of your efforts in making UX and digital practice so much better around telemedicine. Why does grandma have to go to the hospital when I had B2B software? It doesn't make sense. If I give the doctor the Skype and grandma the Skype, or whatever the hell the thing is, it works well, right? Now, okay, healthcare is mad difficult to penetrate. We're just going to be an agency. We're just going to build, we're going to have fun, and we're going to be Rick and Rick. Anyone seen Rick and Morty? Well, me and Alex, my co-founder, Alex is like, if I had a technical mirror that could code that just happens to look completely different from me, that would be Alex. Um, six foot four, twice as wide, twice as big, like crazy. But we said Rick and Rick from Rick and Morty. So what does that mean? Crazy, radical experiments all the time and testing. You put yourself through that and you learn that and you grow. Now, we probably start, we've been around for seven years. We probably started making money in year three. I would not advise that. Um, 
we were young. We had time to muck about. And we said this was the best time to start a business. But the deal is, if you have a skill, write it down. If you have a process to delivering that skill, write that down too. Because that means you can now communicate what you're trying to do to others. Work out how long it's going to take you on average and price yourself nicely, then add 20%. For women, maybe add 40%. Yeah, I start. Oh, yeah. Oh, the reason why I can talk so confidently about this is because I run a school. I actually run something called MSC Saturday, Saturday School, and we teach the community the basics of business. You're all the community. This is the basics of business. So come along. Um, but that's how, that's how you answer that question. Yeah. Map yourself out. Write how long it's going to take you. Go get paid for the time and don't shortchange yourself. Awesome. Okay, so then a question for Natalie. Can you share <laughs> briefly the process by which the V&A acquires a digital sort of mass-produced or symbolic item and does money change hands? Is there licensing? Does it take a long time? Does it depend? The approach is different every time. Okay, good to know. Um, <laughs> just, but sorry, not to shortchange you, whoever asked that question. Um, it does. It depends on everything. We do purchase objects. Um, often, if it's a, um, a mass-produced object, like we often we will buy them from the shops. Um, the other day, actually, I'm planning to go and buy one from a Harrods fifth-floor technology shop because it's wild up there. Um, but we occasionally go and buy stuff. Um, we often purchase from artists. We will pay a fair price with them and work with them. Um, occasionally, we get given stuff. Um, the, the licensing is a tricky question because we don't we, we tend to just when they come into the museum we don't license things we just they come in and they come in as I mentioned earlier that's why it's tricky for us to to acquire Apple like I'd love to work with Apple for them to give us stuff if you, anyone is from Apple and wants to work with us to acquire stuff please talk to me um, but the problem is that the licensing doesn't work because we, it needs to be to our government charter so we are because we're a free and open museum um we have a, a right to, that anyone from the public can, because we're a charity. Um, it usually take, it can take up to, it, we can get something in in two days, sometimes it can take two years. Um, it's not really an easy answer, but it's, it's quite interesting. I find it really interesting because I love paperwork. <laughs> so that's fine. Okay, and one last question um, for, for everyone on the panel. Uh, what is it about the future that gives you hope? Uh, I mean, for me, the answer is probably fairly obvious. Is the climate change protest movement. Um, without them, we're doomed. Cheerful. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the next generation give me hope because they um, seem to have their shit together, I hope. I'm kind of stuck. Um, <laughs> I'm not being fatalist. Um, what gives me hope? You know what? Should I tell you what gives me hope? The understanding of redemption. Like, we've all put out some really bad stuff one, way, one time in our lives or another. Um, we've all done some stuff one day or another. And the idea that, okay, you can't go back and change it. No, not at all. But you can do live different afterwards. That gives me so much hope because it means we can change. Means we can change. <laughs> I'll answer the question. Well, I think for me, it is uh, seeing a room full of people like this coming together, uh, despite all of the change and all the unpredictable change that's happening, and saying, "I think we can do better." 
Um, and we can do better by all of us getting together. I think that's wonderful. So Kenneth, Akil, and Natalie, thanks so much for coming here today and sharing what you know and, um, and, and having the courage to get up on stage and do it. And thank all of you for your great questions and being an awesome audience. That's all the time we have. Thank you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.